0: Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia.
1: We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs.
2: Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job.
1: Yeah, it worked for us.
2: To find motivated
0: young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolaou. Hello, ho, ho, ho. You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. It's our second annual Christmas special where we get together with some of our favorite guests from the year, reminisce on the 12 months that have gone by. And then, of course, the fun part to talk about some of the best and worst calls in financial markets this year. Uh, we've got a great array of guests who I'm sure will bring us a great, um, really um, valuable discussion on um, what's happened throughout the year and looking forward into next year. But as, here, um, uh, uh, as always, I'm here with my uh, venerable co-host, Global Markets and Economics Editor David Scott.
2: You're far too kind, Paul. It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: Uh, okay. So our guests around uh, the table, um, let's start with Joanne Masters, Senior Economist at ANZ. Joanne, great to see you here.
3: I'm great to be back. Thanks. <laughs>
0: Uh, we've also got Laura Fitzsimmons, Vice President Microsales at JP Morgan. Hello, hey. And uh, as uh, one of our regular guests too, uh, James Wheel, investment advisor at
4: VFS Group. How are you, James? Fantastic, Paul. Great to be here. Thank you.
0: Okay. Look, we've got a packed agenda. Uh, we are going to talk about the missing inflation around the world. We're going to talk about um, house prices in Australia. It's been a very interesting part of what's been happening domestically. Uh, we might have a look at China, which has been, I think, one of the big global stories this year. Uh, and, of course, um, we can't, at this the way things are, um, with all the headlines and everything, we can't uh, have this panel of, uh, of great analysts uh, assembled without talking about cryptocurrencies and where it's all been. Of course, then we'll get around to talking uh, about um, our favorite uh, and least favorite uh, calls of the year. But let's start with uh, inflation, uh, absent without leave in advanced economies um, around the world. Uh, I think one of the quotes of the year for me was uh, from Janet Yellen in September which was as follows. Our understanding of the forces driving inflation uh, is imperfect, and we recognize that something more persistent may be responsible for the current undershooting of our longer-run objective. right Now, so this is pretty extraordinary coming from the world's most important central banker, um, and after... 20 years of inflation targeting, central banks being the sort of core of economic policy, uh, core pillar of economic policy in advanced economies, particularly around the world, uh, and talking about you know the importance of getting inflation back to sort of target bands in Australia, we've got two to three percent, um, but uh, around the world, and I know Joanne, you look uh, incredibly closely at this, particularly in the domestic scene, um, that. Uh, No matter what central banks have been doing, um, you know, rates to zero um, uh, and labour markets tightening, which is typically what you would see, what you would associate with uh, a resurgence in inflation or at least a build-up of inflationary pressures, they've been very slow in coming along. Um, Maybe you can take us through what you've seen this year and um, uh, and, uh, and, and what you've thought about it.
3: Sure, absolutely. Look, we do spend a lot of time thinking about inflation and I think... Uh, I guess to echo Janet Yellen's uh, comments, there is something different going on in this cycle. Uh, You know, we know that very clearly. Uh, My guess is it's not one thing, but it's a series of interrelated things. Uh, So we know that for both inflation and for wages, uh, we're facing a more global market. So not just for goods, but actually for people as well. Uh, and some of that's around technology and the fact that we can now export services around the world. So you know you can be an architect sitting in one part of the world operating in another part of the world. So that that piece is, is really important for wages and really important for inflation as well. So we've got this globalization. We've got technology. We've got AI coming. We've also got, and I think this is a big piece of it, uh, elevated dread risk, to use a term that the Bank of England uh, used. So that is that we know that post-GFC that consumers and employees react... um, It's sort of more intensely and for longer to bad news and less intensely and shorter for good news. So, from a wage shedding behavior, as soon as the person sitting next to you gets retrenched, the impact on you actually is larger and lasts for longer. Uh, So, job insecurity is elevated. That's uh, one of the reasons, alongside globalization, that we're seeing wage growth so weak. I think also, uh, you know, we're clearly seeing weakness in retail prices. Uh, that's very much true in Australia, but it's actually globally true. So actually outright deflation across many retail prices. And in Australia, of course, we've got uh, a unique sort of added downward pressure on the retail space because of foreign entrants actually opening Brick and mortar stores here in Australia, and we've Which seen that. Which has been something
0: that's been building up in Europe for a, a long time. It was pre-GFC, but it, it, you know, it was back to the 2000s that the American stores started moving into Europe, etc., and European stores started crossing the Atlantic. Um, but this has been a more recent phenomenon here, and it's kind of been wrapped up with all of the other pressures that you've been talking about.
3: That's right. So it's coincided with the other pressures, and I think it's also happened harder and faster here because Australia has been one of the later markets for these uh, now. Global Global retailers to enter they 've become better and better and better at entering new markets and also retail margins in Australia were quite high so they 've been able to really squeeze uh, that we saw it in supermarkets initially and then in clothing but now you're actually seeing it across you know, a really wide range of goods so if you look at the CPI basket you know retail prices effectively are either falling or basically going sideways um, so I think that's been a really important part of the inflation dynamic
0: so um, Laura, uh, one of the big Themes at the very start of this year, January, February, after Trump's election um, just over a year ago, uh, was this whole uh, the reflation trade in global markets. Um, uh, The um, thought that um, yields would rise steadily through the year. Um, It didn't quite happen. Maybe you can talk us through uh, what happened there.
1: Yeah, that's right. I I think, uh, you know, the global reflation trade everyone got very excited about. As you say, at the end of last year, Trumponomics was here, and, uh, you know, we were all focused on steeper yield curves uh, and clearly, you know, inflation markets were alive again after many years in the doldrums. Uh, unfortunately, it hasn't really played out. I think when we realised that Trump uh, initially on the healthcare reform agenda was going to fail at the first hurdle, uh, you know, there was some concerns therefore that uh, that might be difficult for him to get a lot of other stuff through as well. I think the one thing we're always most confident on, at JP Morgan at least, was that on the tax side of things, he probably really would have some success. And here we are the end of the year and finally that does seem to be at least getting at some decent traction. Uh, And so markets that can not completely say that the the reflation trade has failed and it's all over, but it's been much more confined in its effects to maybe the equity markets versus say fixed income markets where we'd hoped a lot more of the excitement might have appeared.
0: Absolutely. And so I think um, coming to the end of the year, I think I saw um, that the benchmark um, US 10 years at 2.4. But uh, I I look back at uh, where yields were, particularly for the Australian 10-year uh, benchmark at the start of the year it was about 2.75 uh, when all the excitement was around um, but now it's at 2.5 maybe 2.55 um, so so you know bonds have continued to rally if you bought a bond, the value of that bond will have increased during the year. So what have the conversations been like with clients um, around that? Because was were there a lot of clients kind of going like, how do I get a piece of this?
1: I think, I mean really there's been a lot of questions about, you know, obviously the flatness of, of global curves as you suggest, um, particularly when you think about maybe the Aussie curve, uh, you know, clearly we have outperformed uh, both Antipodea markets in Australia and New Zealand versus the US, so you've seen that spread contra- compressed through the year, which has been something that people have been very focused on. Uh, but at the same time, it's it's, it's one of those things where we we look at the US 10 year yield and we think 2.4 2.4 seems to be a pretty strong resistance in yields uh, and for that reason, you know, to push through it is, is quite hard and we seem to be talking a lot about this wall of money that appears to be out there globally that always seems to be on the bid for longer dated treasuries or, or you know, euro govy bonds whatever it might be uh, and that doesn't seem to be diminished as yet. The questions now are really about whether that's there next year, where it comes from. Um, obviously when you look at central banks who are potentially going to be tapering, uh, when you look at the ECB and BOJ who are the, obviously the big players. In, the, in that sphere and whether you know that's the story for next year, that's clearly where the risks lie. Uh, but certainly I think everyone's been always too quick to co- try and call an end to quantitative easing, particularly with the ECB. Uh, and certainly I think that's where a lot of global investors have you know sort of come a cropper this year. You've been much better to be confined to the front end of the curves, obviously in the US where the, the Fed have steadily hiked, despite having Yellen at the helm, which probably surprised most. But um, it's the long end that's really caused probably most of the concerns.
0: So maybe we can talk... Um, uh, and. Jump in here, anybody who wants to, uh, to shout on this. But this reduction in um, central bank balance sheets, right? Um, we've had an unprecedented expansion in central bank balance sheets. So, uh, BOJ uh, vast um, expansion of the balance sheet there. Fed obviously, um, and um, you know, uh, and the European Central Bank. So, what's going to happen as they start to reduce the size of those balance sheets is also going to be unprecedented. Um, David, maybe I can start with you. Um, what do you think some of the potential effects are here?
2: I think the uh, back end of the uh, yield curve will probably be going to tick up a bit in terms of yields. Um, you've got, uh, obviously, quantitative tightening arriving in the, uh, in the US with the Fed. Uh, ECB, all things being equal, look like they'll start uh, you know, trimming things back quite substantially uh, by the end of next year. And even uh, the Bank of Japan, who's been uh, doing uh, the yield curve control, they're going to focus on that part of their, uh, their policy, but not so necessarily the, uh, the, the amount that they're buying. Um, so all things being equal, you're not going to have that, that, that wall of central bank money that's, that's pushing funds out into the global markets uh, that will then go and put that, uh, that downward pressure onto those yields. So I know all the talk's been about, uh, I know, the flattening yield curve at the moment. I don't expect that we're going to see a big steepening, but the other time I don't think we're going to see uh, the yield curve actually you know, get any more flatter than what we're seeing at the moment. James,
0: do you think maybe that this is kind of the new normal, right? Um, that growth is, you know okay, um, inflation is low, um, job creation is going okay, there's disruptive threats in different sectors. Um,
4: I think there's, uh, a few, there's, a, there's a few things on there that, that you and I have had this conversation many times and, and there comes a certain time in the night with just enough wine and just enough beer and, and, and just the right amount of scotch when you realise that what if, what if the way that they're counting the numbers is based on the old way of productivity and the old way that the world revolves, and and that we're still trying to count on the old way, even though the the new way of doing things is not the way that things are done anymore. You know, we can we can export services like you said, Joe. That's perfect. That we, it's it's the, the the competition around the world is means that everything sort of gets a little bit flatter, a bit cheaper. Um, there's no there's no pressure. I do strongly believe, though. That being said, I do strongly believe though that we will see in 2018. Uh, that that true growth will be the story. Whereas debt was, was for a large part of the story this year, that actual real growth, especially in Europe and a little bit in the US will be
2: the story for 2018. I'm sure Laura can uh, go and uh, fill us in on the, uh, the the PMI readings because that's something that I've been particularly uh, optimistic about as a lead indicator about where the global economy is going and that's part of my thesis why I think you might see the back end of the curve going and, and maybe uh, push up a little bit higher is that the global growth does seem much stronger and much more broad-based than what we've seen in the past.
1: That's right and I think when we spoke back in March uh, you know we were we were still constructive and positive on the outlook. Uh, Both of us were but you know it did feel like at many stages throughout the year the markets were kind of looking for a reason for that to stall. Uh, You know be it North Korea, be it the French elections, be it whatever it was but there was certainly plenty of people trying to throw obstacles in the way of that global growth engine but it just kept on going and at this stage you know we still see probably not the same pace actually into the next year because this year has been pretty remarkable in that sense but certainly a continuation of the strength. Uh, so that's why we're still co- constructive on the global outlook and that you know, dictates a lot of our big calls for the next year including you know four hikes from the Fed which we're not alone in but certainly investors are a little bit more dubious on that.
3: I think on a variety of metri- metrics, the global picture is really positive. You mentioned the PMIs, every PMI above 50. You know, the US has had over 100 months of economic expansion. Australia's had 26 years of uninterrupted uh, expansion. And every economy in the EU is growing. Mm. Uh, so, you yeah. know, we haven't seen that combination of consistent and broad-based growth for many years.
4: But, and, and the key thing, it's, it's all for nothing. Well, it's all for something, obviously, but but it's it's... It doesn't mean a lot unless there's wage growth at the, end of the, at the end of that tunnel. And the light of wage growth is, I believe, that you can see it in Germany, where that, um, there's enough pressure on their factory, uh, factory purchases. All the PMI data that's coming out is saying that there is actually that slack that was there is now so tight that it's actually starting to impact wage, um, wages in Germany, which is great for me and great for, great for the play, Um, in that it's going to put an upward pressure on on wage growth and that's what you need. There's just been that so much slack there and it's tightening up just enough now that 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 there's going to be some wage growth and that's the important thing for me. I think if you look
3: really closely across a few economies if you look not just at the broad-based wage numbers but if you look at particular industries you know, you are sort of seeing some wage growth improvement in industries where there is employment demand. And, you know, RBA Governor Lowe says that consistently. And it, it, it is true in Australia. There are some sectors where you are seeing some acceleration in wage growth It's just not broad-based yet. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm with you. I actually do believe that over time, wage growth can accelerate. I do think the cycle's been different, but I don't think the cycle is dead.
0: I think one of these things, obviously, this feeds um, in a big way into consumer sentiment, um, into you know how households are feeling about the budgets. Um, ANZ has the weekly consumer sentiment reading. Um, and uh, we've seen that um, being pretty weak. Um, and I know, Joe, you look very carefully. This is a big part of um, your research. And I think you've been one of the leading voices talking about the, the weakness in the consumer sector. In fact, you were talking about this a year ago. Um, and that has continued to be a huge um, theme uh, throughout um, this year. Um, now, over the last six months, uh, I think what's been really interesting has been, you know, through the the growth in house prices that we've seen over the last few years, um, you obviously get what's called a wealth effect, which makes people feel, um, you know, more confident and, you know, a bit more relaxed about the spending, so they will go out and spend. But that's starting to retrace now. And started, people are starting to pull back in because maybe it's because of the debt levels got so high. Maybe they've got some concerns about their job security, etc. And that is, I think, playing a part in what we're seeing in the housing market that the, some of the heat has come out of it. There's all sorts of reasons. Obviously, the APRA interventions. Um, in terms of, you know, restricting investor lending, uh, have been a massive factor in that. Um, but with that starting to slow down, do you think that the consumer uh, outlook is also feeding that sort of slowing in in house price growth that we've seen? In fact, um, turning negative uh, in Sydney and Melbourne uh, in recent weeks. Um, can you talk to me about how you see that whole picture in terms of the, what's, what's constituting the, the, the changes in, in house price growth?
3: Sure. Look, I think um, I actually think the consumer is probably the number one risk for the Australian economy in 2018. Um, obviously, that's not a non- fairly consensus kind of view, but I actually think it's really, really critical. Uh, as you said, you've got this confluence of uh... elevated job insecurity uh... we've had a lot of uh, sharp price increases for non-discretionary items uh... now electricity everyone talks about electricity actually is only about two and a half percent of what you spend in a year as a nation we spend more on tobacco than we spend on electricity but um, it, it comes on top of private health insurance which many people you know need to have it comes on top of childcare. that's been an enormous one so When you look at the CPI, I think I said before, a lot of retail prices are falling, but a lot of those non-discretionary items uh, have been rising. And then more recently, of course, you've had sharp increase in petrol prices. uh, And then, as you alluded to, this slowdown in house price growth. And I think the slowdown in house price growth uh, is going to be really critical. So on our numbers... Uh, if I go back to the beginning of this year, we thought that house price growth in Sydney, for example, would halve this year and halve again next year. So we have Sydney house prices at the end of 2018 up about 3% year on year. That is going to feel really weak when you've had 16% house price growth at the peak. Uh, so I think that is starting to play in to the mindset of consumers. I think in Q3, there was a sticker shock impact from high electricity prices. Uh, I actually don't think uh, that has a lasting kind of structural impact, but it definitely did seem to sort of hit consumer spending in that early part of Q3. Uh, but I think that the household is challenged. Uh, they're very highly leveraged. Uh, they're being told that interest rates may rise. They're being told their job may not exist in five years' time. They've been told they need to retrain or maybe too old to retrain. Uh, and at the same time, all these things that they can't not spend money on, all these non-discretionary items are going up really, really sharply in prices. So from my perspective, it's not surprising to see consumers start to pull back a little bit on that discretionary spending, um, and try to bring consumption growth in line with income growth. So consumption growth has been running a little below 3%. You know, income growth is at record lows. So, one of two things has to happen, either or both. You know, either income growth has to lift or consumption growth has to slow. Now, on our numbers, we do have some acceleration in income growth. Uh, we've got um, a very, very gradual lift in the wage um, rate, if you like, but we have had very strong employment growth. So overall, kind of consumer household income, we think will grow a little bit, um, but we do think that consumption growth is going to. F- struggle to accelerate and it's it's acceleration in any component of GDP that um, creates growth, you know, you, you need an acceleration not just a kind of level of activity to create GDP growth.
0: Mm. Um, and Laura, um, can I ask you for your take on specifically um, with the housing market, uh, there has been um, a pretty discernible shift towards the end of this year uh, in terms of how the market's performing etc and it's a big question for because not only is it just about you know people's wealth and their confidence and how they feel about their their assets and all that kind of thing but um uh just with the way it's connected to so many different parts of the economy and people's retirement savings etc it's um uh it is important it's a very important pillar of the australian economy uh, how do you see see it playing out
1: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, as you noted, the slowdown is certainly becoming evident. Uh, And, you know, I think going into next year, we probably would continue to see more of the same and probably that that will continue on that trajectory for the moment. You could probably imagine maybe small single single digit declines in growth even next year, particularly obviously in the apartment sector. That's a big concern for us. And and, uh, you know, clearly that's specific to certain cities. Uh, But even on a national level, um, you know, you could expect those declines. So I think for us going forward, we're very cautious. you know, like Joanne, we've, we've been very, very worried about the Aussie consumer into next year and it's been a story we've run with a lot um, and it's the reason why we don't expect the RBA to be doing anything next year and we haven't for some time, uh, whereas the market tends to get a little bit excited about, you know, rate hikes when they see them in Canada or something that we're going to follow suit. Uh, but we are a very different nation and we're at a very different stage in our cycle uh, and so we, we tend to, you know, push back on that a lot. Um, so there certainly are concerns. Uh, I don't think We don't think the bottom's going to fall out of the whole housing market though and that's, I think, the important thing. I mean, clearly Clearly there's, you know, you get a lot of bearish stories, offshore investors love talking about Aussie housing and, and, and you know, how how it can break and certainly the New Zealand side of things at the moment is concerning and we're obviously seeing the unwind of macroprudential measures there so it's something that, you know, APRA I'm sure are watching very closely because there you've probably got the evidence of quite a significant slowdown and Australia could follow suit if we're not sort of tweaking things carefully. So what,
0: What's that, New Zealand looking at now um, in terms of um, price changes?
1: Well, I mean, we had some updates this morning, I think it's actually improved a little bit. Just uh, the and Z prices came out this morning, but it, prior to that, it was sort of down 15% year-on-year. Year, um, whereas I think it was around 8% this morning in that release. So you know, look, it's 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 one of those things. They're aware of the issue. They've obviously started to, from January one, roll back some of the macro prudential for investors, but only very only a very small amount. But it's still probably earlier than the market was expecting over there. And you kind of wonder whether you know, it's always a very difficult thing to slow down a frothy housing market. Uh, it's very hard not to choke it off too, too much. And I think that's, you know, what we're obviously going to have to face that challenge here. Potentially, you know, that's what's happening. But at the moment, I would say the risk is that APRA do more rather than less until they see credit growth really falling in Australia. And you mentioned consumption growth and income growth. We think about credit growth and income growth. And right now, as, as we know, it's, income growth is not really picking up. We don't really see much um, for the, in, in the near term either. So credit growth is going to have to continue to decline. And, and that's not going to. Feel like a great place to live.
0: I think one little um, uh, footnote on that was I saw for the first time in recorded history in Australia there was a decline recorded in the number of credit cards on issue.
4: Yes, first, Uh, yeah, I saw that. I saw that you you put that out this morning. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, It's incredible. Which is uh, amazing, you know, after, you know, when you think about. Population growth, economic growth, all of that kind of stuff. That you know, the number of credit cards on issue is uh, starting to decline, and it's a reflection, possibly, of people going, "Okay, we've just got to be a little bit more careful with this debt. We're just rein it in, um, cut up one or two of the cards." And uh, <laughs> or the physically,
4: or physically <laughs> and I don't want to say this because I mean, we all know that we all know that banks love giving away credit cards without, you know, they 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 love giving away debt. Maybe people just physically can't go into any more. Into any more personal debt than they already have—it's—it's—it's it's, it's ludicrous. But the, actually, just sort of maybe potentially opening up a segue for you, Paul. And I, I know that I know that you uh, you love me doing this sort of thing. My player of the year for 2017 could possibly and definitely in my top three be APRA for those macro macroprudential reforms that they've done. Actually, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll leave this open to the debate. But quite possibly saved the Australian economy. I don't want to say that, but definitely, it, but but they worked. It, it absolutely worked. Now, I, you know, if, if you want to go into a housing a conversation on that, then, then that's it, but, but they're definitely... Uh, and I wasn't super confident on it, on it working, but it does appear to have done the job.
3: And they are continuing to work. Yes. Worked and working, actually. Yes. And I guess that's always one of the questions with macro-approved measures is how long does it work? And, you know, when we had the first round of macro-approved tightening, it was then followed by two rate cuts, so it's kind of hard to know how it would have played out had monetary policy been left uh, unchanged. So this time around, you, you're clearly seeing it. You can see it in the official data, but you can actually see it in the annual results from the big four banks as well. You are clearly seeing uh, you know, investor loan rates go up. You're clearly seeing interest-only uh, lending rates yeah. go up. You're clearly seeing a slowdown in that lending. You're seeing improvements in LVRs, you know, yeah. all those... Objectives around those macro approved controls are sensible actually things,
4: out. sensible things happening, which is which is fantastic, and and the continuing. I like the way that you said that you guys, uh, ANZ have got a what a three percent growth at the end of next year for house prices. The house price growth, yeah, yep. that's
3: nationwide overall.
4: That's that's still pretty good. That's the same way that I mean, oh, it's the, good. It's yeah, just no, going to no, 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 feel but, weak. But relatively. Yeah, it's going to feel it's weak. Weak. the same way that the same yeah. way that six point three percent growth in China. Feels weak. weak compared to a thousand percent that we've been dealing with all through our lives, right? <laughs> so that's uh, the, yeah, no, I'd so, yeah, best on ground, probably the APRA guys, um,
2: for, for what they've done. Definitely took the heat off the RBA this year. Better late than never. I think that uh, they could, have, <laughs> they, they, they could have certainly acted sooner rather than what they did, but uh, no, better late than never. And I agree that I think that there's a, a very big risk that you're going to see tighter restrictions, not looser restrictions, arriving. Uh, which means that from a housing market perspective, if Australia's going to take its medicine for quite a, a period of time. Uh, and how that plays out with the other uh, consumption side of things and the other uh, household side of things is the great unknown, and I agree that uh, the, the biggest risk in the two thousand and eighteen is the household sector in australia
0: it 's certainly going to be interesting James, you touched on uh, China in there, and I do want to talk about it because not only is it um, australia 's most important um, economic partner it 's the eye watering twenty three percent of our trade is uh, with China. Um, But something really important happened there this year. Um, I think over the last few years, um, I think it's been very clear that the sort of geopolitical uh, and economic center of gravity in the world is starting to march east. Um, You know, uh, obviously, you know, the U.S. still being by far the world's most important economy. What's happening in Europe um, with the size of the, the, the European Union's economy? Um, obviously, uh, vital as well. But uh, in terms of looking forward over the next couple of decades, um, you know how this plays out in China uh, and how it manages its economic transition is going to be hugely important. So, with the um, the Party Congress there this year, um, Xi Jinping uh, really consolidated his uh, power. Everybody sort of expected it, but the the. The emphatic nature of what happened with his name being written into the constitution—you know, alongside Mao—I uh, mean, extraordinary. Um, so uh, he's got you know very firm grip uh, on um, on the policy levers there now, um, and uh, it is going to be uh, hugely important um, both politically but also economically. Uh, and I might start with you, uh, Laura, on how you see um, the outlook for China over the next um, over the next year or so.
1: Yeah, well, what's interesting, I think, you know, normally as we head into any year, I think for the last five years, at least that I can remember, you know, China's been the big concern. What's the biggest risk for the year? And and everyone trots out the same excuse um, and the same one each time. Um, But, you know, I think next year is going to be different in the sense that when I look at the consensus around at the moment, it's that China's probably going to be okay. Um, And, you know, I think that stems from, obviously, the PBOC's actions have been quite, um, you know, incremental and steady in some ways and have been relatively commended by um, their offshore peers uh, and. And so I think there is a level of confidence around them actually trying to engineer this at the moment. Um, and, uh, you know, I think people feel more comfortable, therefore, about the risks. Um, you know, obviously there, there is an in indication that they are trying to reduce the levels of leverage, uh, and that's really important overall. Uh, and clearly, you know, we don't have necessarily this... Ambitious target of trying to double GDP, you know, between 2010-2020. And I think that was always going to be a big thing. If that was going to continue, for markets, they're just going to think, well, you know, what does that what does that mean? And that's going to clearly bring a lot more leverage in the system, which clearly China does not need. So I think for us, everyone has been encouraged. Um, particularly when I look at global research, um, there does seem to be a bit of consensus that you know things are going to be okay. Obviously, housing is probably still one of the big concerns in China. And I think you know there was certainly some themes around, you know, houses are for living in, not for investment, uh, and you know the Number of properties one needs is, is certainly shouldn't be on more than one hand. Um, but I think at this stage, you know, that's probably where one of the risks are for next year. But overall, when we look at maybe China stock market declines and things like that, because people are trying to look for that story still, I think, to an extent, particularly amongst market investors. Um, but, you know, we feel that, you know, obviously there's such a huge exposure to tech in China, and obviously that tech's not been the greatest performer in the last few weeks. So I think we have to be careful about what we're you know, trying to you know, make a story out of China. I think at this stage we feel probably better about it than we have for some time. We're still looking for sort of that 6.5% GDP growth next year.
0: David, you look at this uh, on a regular basis. Um, Laura mentioned um, the decline in um, stocks. It's been quiet.
2: Uh, it's been, you know, um, 0.3% day by day and all of a sudden, Oh, they've been rallying the stock market. What are you talking about? It's well, been—it's it's, been—it's been—they've had a stonking year. But um, yeah, it's well, uh, through the year. But I mean, in recent oh, weeks, Oh, yeah, in, yeah. in recent weeks. But you know, you're talking about a market that had gone up more than twenty percent uh, over the course of the calendar year. So, at some point, you're going to have to go and take some of the uh, the froth out of the market. And there was a few uh, maneuvers. Uh, certain uh, alcohol uh, beverage maker, which uh, their stock market uh, stock market. Uh, capitalisation had absolutely skyrocketed to like being one of the biggest companies in China. And then the government came out and, and warned about uh, you know, these kind of uh, you know, speculative tendencies, and lo and behold, uh, it fell, and a whole lot of uh, you know, tech stocks fell as well. So I'm not too concerned about what's going on in the Chinese stock market. Even at the, uh, the peak of when all the hysteria was happening uh, back in uh, 2015, when it was plunging and uh, all that kind of thing, I don't think you know, it really gave you a strong read about what was actually happening in the Chinese economy.
0: Um, okay, and um, Joe, um, it, just in terms of looking at the, you know, the, the exposure to China and, um, and Australia's exposure to China, um, how do you see that at the moment?
3: Oh, look, as you said, it's uh, you know not just our largest trading partner, but its influence on other economies in the world actually magnitudes its importance for Australia. So. Often, uh, when you hear it's the greatest risk for the outlook, it's because you know see its global presence, um, both directly for as a trading partner and indirectly through the influence on other economies. Look, uh, a bit like uh, J.P. Morgan, we're quite positive on China. Uh, Our chief economist always says to me it's gliding to a soft landing, which I've actually uh, stolen and I'm going to use for the Australian housing market. Um, (laughs) So, uh, look. So, um, but I think one of the interesting things for China, and I think this is really important for Australia and our trade patterns, actually, is not what The growth rate is. It's where it's coming from, Uh, and and there is even amongst Chinese policymakers a a shift in focus to the quality of growth rather than just the quantity of growth. Uh, And I think it's quite encouraging that uh, we are seeing this rotation to a more consumer-led services advanced economy. And that new economy uh, part of China is now contributing about two percentage points of their sort of six and a half percent growth. So Uh, I I, I saw an extraordinary
0: uh, bit of data from. I think the World Bank uh, a couple of weeks ago, which was the rural poverty rates in China going back to 1980. And in 1980, that rural poverty rate was around 90%, and now it's below 10%. Um, so and in sort of 35 years, um, they or um, 40 years, they've managed to basically almost eliminate this, you know, the, that sort of you know, abysmal levels of poverty that, that would have, you know, Chinese farmhands would have had, Chinese farming families um, but by transitioning their, their, you know, all of this urbanisation uh, industrialization, moving away from this agrarian uh, type of economy that they've managed to transform society in the way that they have. Now they've got to move on to the next stage, uh, which is managing people's expectations, lifestyle, uh, managing the wealth that's been created, um, and you know um, all of this crackdown on you know high living on Macau, on golf apparently is completely <laughs> taboo. That's what you know. So Donald Trump when he visited Asia goes and plays golf with everybody except absolutely out of the question to uh, to play with Xi. Um, wow. So, yeah, no well, chance. I think
3: that burgeoning middle class in, in China is one of the key sort of demographic um, megatrends, if you like, uh, which will be really important for Australia. So I've seen some estimates that suggest the middle class in China will more than double in size and double in average income by 2030. And, of course, Australia is really well-placed to service that that consumer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of it's around the services. As, and, you know, things like education and tourism are obvious, but we're starting to see it in things like healthcare as well. So you're hearing stories of, uh, you know, Australians... Um, Tend to go to China, um, uh, Thailand, sorry, for cheap plastic surgery. I'm hearing stories of middle class Chinese coming to Australia for world class hip and knee replacements. So, you know, that services side of the economy for Australia will be really well placed to feed into that burgeoning middle class in China. It's
4: very interesting. And lots of things to look at. Uh, the, the uh, there are going to be these amazing little uh, golden nuggets that, that that are out there when this sort of thing comes up. I'm reminded of of uh, when China started to, to to lift up during the GFC. And China was still on the boom, on the up, and uh, the financial world was, was definitely on the outer. And there was that joke that uh, Chinese, uh, that Hong Kong housewives were going over to China to buy fake Prada, and the Chinese housewives were going over to Hong Kong to buy the real thing, so the, <laughs> yeah. the, which, uh, which is, is coming. Funnily enough, uh, just looking at uh, some research out of Deutsche Bank today, um, that China's uh, working age is actually now declining. So whilst everyone was living in, in this beautiful uh, this beautiful sea of it being an increasing working age, it's now sort of gone over the hill and starting to be a bit more like maybe not so much like Japan with a with a declining population, ageing population, but a bit more like Korea where it's where it's on the way down. So, you, funny you mentioned the knee and hip replacement because that's definitely the next thing that comes along with that sort of thing. And, and uh, yeah, China's China's
2: beautiful middle class it just keeps on getting bigger and bigger. It's definitely opportunity. You know, education, health. Uh and, uh, and healthcare are uh, a really Important factors that are going to go and offset. No, it's all likelihood we're going to start seeing the Chinese demand for raw materials will start falling away, and that includes from Australia. Although we have a lot of uh, high-grade stuff here, so we won't have too much of a decline. But that will eventually start to go and come off. But in its place, you're going to have this services side, and you've already seen in the t- recent trade data from uh, from the ABS that the services uh, exports that we're producing at the moment is a really, really large component. now we're talking about the second largest uh, out there at the moment um, besides iron ore. So when you put that together, you know all the the bears about you know how and you know, China's slowdown might go and impact Australia from like you know the commodity standpoint is one thing, but you've got to look at the bigger picture about what the opportunities in the other areas are.
3: And yeah. food, of course, is the other one. The uh, the, you know, the we've option. got such a strong reputation as clean, green, high quality, geographically well placed to feed into not just China but actually all of Asia. The, the global protein shortage uh you know let alone luxury items such as wine
4: yeah australia australia as being asia's food bowl is still a a great space to be in i believe and and still has a lot more upside to be does anyone want to talk about china leading the world on environmental reform and 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 electronic vehicle reform and all of those amazing things That that it's actually it seems like it sounds like you do no no not really i was just saying you know you know me i just like to open the conversation let's lay it out for everyone to play it out but the um, after President Xi was um, re-established as as president, I oh, always get this wrong. President, he's the president, right? Yes, President Xi. Uh, that um, he's gone straight into these green policies. Um, immediate, um, you know, the, the, the winter shutdown of factories in China, or you know, the rolling back of the of the, fact of the iron ore producing, sorry, steel producing factories in China, is, uh, and um, cutting out the number of cars that will be. Uh, bought that are internal combustion engines, which means that everyone needs to be selling into them, needs to be an EV car. Um, the, the flow-on effects that that is having and, and has had so far will continue to go as well. And it's not just lithium, cobalt, you know, all the, all the obvious graphite sort of things like that. There's going to be a lot of downstream effects as well in other fields, it needs to be looked at too.
0: Well, that's right. So the countries and companies that are positioned to, to meet the different demands um, that um, that the chi- that China's economy decides that, well, these are the things we want, this is the direction we're going to go, um, there's a massive amount of opportunity there. As for what happened to Australia when they decided, okay, we're going to roll out this massive infrastructure program um, throughout the 2000s, you know, we're going to build bridges, roads, all that kind of stuff, and pop, we had this just... Extraordinary um, mining boom, which transformed um, Australia and kept you know the economy growing um, through a very difficult period. Um, speaking of luxury items, um, there are some people around the world who are buying buying Ferraris and all sorts of things um, as a result of buying um some where are they getting their money paul where are they getting their money well if they can manage to release it from whatever cryptocurrency exchange they've put it into and if
4: your wallet doesn't get hacked <laughs> that's right
0: so look it has been one of the stories of the year um it has been extraordinary um I, i've got a
4: little um
0: account th- that i follow on twitter called bitcoin pizza um and it, it's it's uh, it, about a guy who bought a a guy called Laszlo Hanyek, who bought a pizza for 10,000 Bitcoin in uh, 2010. And each day, Bitcoin Pizza tweets out what the current value of that pizza would be in US dollars. So two days ago, three days ago, sorry, the Bitcoin Pizza is now worth 137 million, $137.4 million, <laughs> down 14% from yesterday. And the following day, 24 hours later, the Bitcoin Pizza is worth $165.2 million dollars. Um, uh, yeah, up twenty percent from yesterday, and it goes on and so forth. It is extraordinary. It's been wild. Um, I, you know, I think people who've been in it for a long time have obviously, you know, done rather well of it. All that kind of stuff. But look, um, just with this group of people, got to ask you, uh, Joe.
3: Do you want to start? What do you think? Oh, I, I think. It's got all the hallmarks of a speculative bubble and none of the hallmarks of a true currency. Now, whether it can morph into a commodity is another question, but for me, um, I think that uh, look, you're not a winner on it until you've actually taken profit, as with any trade. Um, and by all accounts, it's quite difficult to, you know, to get out of your trade, right? So a lot of limitations around it. It's also quite expensive to trade, and a lot of people, when they quote those sort of numbers around how much they've made, don't include their transactions action costs. So uh, I'm in the camp that suggests a speculative bubble, now who knows how long that lasts. You know, Some speculative bubbles can last for some time, but um, pretty risky I would think.
2: James?
4: Uh, Yeah, uh, Joe you're absolutely correct. It should not, probably should not ever have been treated like a currency, it it is, I believe it is a a commodity, Um, sort of somewhere between a soft and a hard commodity I suppose you could say. There actually is a finite number of Bitcoins uh, that are there. Obviously, everyone wants to talk about the technology behind it, blockchain, blah, 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 it's boring, who cares, um, but the, uh, it's, it's actually not, sorry, I was joking there, it's quite, actually quite exciting and, and will change the world and everything that we do uh, until quantum computing comes along, but the, um, yes, just because it is a bubble does not mean that it is going to, to burst, um, the two do not have to go hand in hand, I believe it does have a long way to go ahead of it. Um, I do think it is interesting that, not only on formats such as these, but also on on the Bloombergs and the CNBCs and, and, and on the Business Insider website as well, that, that this has gone from it being a, oh, isn't that funny, to now actually being, this is a thing that, that we actually need to, to have a proper look at and to start treating, um, uh, start treating as an actual real thing.
0: Um, Dave, you've been watching it throughout the year. Um, you hate bubbles. Um, what do you make of it?
2: I don't hate bubbles, what are you talking about? Um, Yeah, look, I agree with the others. It's a speculative bubble. Um, I don't really see what its intrinsic value is. Yes, there's a finite uh, amount of them, but uh, I really can't get excited about it, to be honest. People look at an investor chart when you and you think about uh, the investment cycle, and you see like the investor emotions, and you see like optimism and like hope, and then it gets to the euphoric stage, and then all of a sudden the price comes off a bit, and you get the denial phase, then you get the despair phase when you've completely done your money. At the moment, we're just approaching that euphoric stage, in my opinion.
0: That's certainly going to be interesting to see in the year ahead, Laura. Do you have a take on it?
1: Yeah. Look, Do you get asked a lot by clients? We, yeah, a lot. I mean, obviously the last few weeks very much so, but I think it's interesting that I'm talking with, you know, sort of very sophisticated investors um, to, you know, sort of asset managers to taxi drivers, to my mother to, you know, everyone is talking about this and I think you know, we all know that. Uh, you know, the way we look at it at J.P. Morgan, obviously we have to be, you know, quite objective in many ways uh, in terms of the research side. You know, it all comes down to it being a store of wealth and a means of payment and that's where we will continue to judge it in the interim. We also look A lot, obviously, at the risk of the other cryptocurrencies in the sense of Ethereum, or you know how they could cannibalize each other. So you've got to think about all those risks. And for us, it's really looking at the level of volatility. At this stage, it's certainly not something I would want to be too exposed to because I feel that you know it it hasn't really found uh, its kind of correct sort of level, Uh, and it certainly can extend further. But I can also see another another washout at some point. So wouldn't be stepping in here, but at the same time, wouldn't argue with people who say you have to have just a little bit in there just in case this thing does take off. I feel
4: like I'm the person who's long who's long Bitcoin at this time. Probably. Is that
3: because you can't get out or because you actually want to hold it?
4: I forgot, my, I forgot my login.
3: I did read this morning apparently uh, one of the um, the apps that you can trade your Bitcoin on is now the most popular or common app in the US. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> so you know you used have the taxi when taxi drivers start talking about it. I feel like that about oh, the number right. of people that are purchasing was, the app.
4: Yeah, it was when I I went to the App Store on my iPhone and I saw that the top five, four, sorry, four of the top five were in some way coin-related apps.
2: Mm. Um, That's when I sort of doubled my exposure to it because that's then that that's that next leg up and that next kick. I look at a lot of anecdotal evidence to go and judge where, where something is in investment cycle and whether it's a, you know, a, a hysteria or speculative or whatever else. And I, all I can say is that I've been getting lots and lots of SMS uh, requests asking me whether I should go and buy Bitcoin. And then the next thing I'm seeing now is, is the number of PR emails that are coming through to me. I'm getting probably 10 to 20 crypto PR emails every day. So if you're out there and you're considering buying it, just put that into perspective. Maybe like, no, that's probably about, no, maybe half of the PR emails that I get every day are just about cryptocurrencies.
4: And also, could everyone stop sending David Scott uh, PR crypto emails? He's not he's not reading them. He's just bulk deleting, I think.
2: <laughs> There's a friend of mine in
0: Ireland who... Uh, did a Facebook post a couple of weeks ago, okay, I think I've got to get into this this thing, hashtag Bitcoin. Uh, this is true. Like, so this is my my recollection of... Four Facebook posts from him over the last couple of weeks. The following week it was, I think I have to get out of this Bitcoin thing. <laughs> it's too stressful. Hashtag Bitcoin. Yeah. Then I wake up one morning, I'll check Facebook. Um Bitcoin sixteen thousand eight hundred USD. Go you good thing. Yeah, yeah. Hashtag
4: Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, it does. Yeah.
0: Go, go. And then, you know, it just sort of completes the cycle. You know, this is in four weeks. It's something I think I mentioned to you that joke before we started the show, which is that there's, you know, this thing about this kid who says, hey, Dad, I, I need um, I need to buy a Bitcoin. And his dad turns around to him and says, why on earth do you want $16,872? $14,542 is an awful lot of money to be looking for. What, what, what are you going to spend $18,212 on anyway? Yeah,
4: 682 um. Amazingly, though, this week with the CBOE bringing in uh, futures contracts on Bitcoin and, in some way, legitimizing uh, uh, that side of things, it, it, it opens up a few doors. First off, this will be potentially one of the first bubbles in recent history where the banks have been the last to the game. Um, congratulations and welcome to the welcome to the game, guys. This is a market that doesn't take breaks, doesn't sleep, it doesn't take weekends. Um, I hope you're up for it, Wall Street, because. Um, Yeah, no more trips up to the Hamptons because you're gonna have. If if you're on this desk, you're gonna have to keep on going, and you don't get Sundays off anymore. So, um, the other side of it is that with this is an area that desperately, desperately needs regulation, and they should be embracing regulation and not trying to fight it. Uh, Gone are the days of the old, you know, us as libertarians um, on this corner of the room um, who have have loved the 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 anti-fiat currencies and have loved these because it does give you a bit of away from the government uh, eye on things. Um, Now it needs to be looking to regulation and assisting the regulators with how do we help this, help ourselves.
2: Well, watch your space, James, because one of the last emails that, that I saw come through uh, in relation to uh, cryptos was from the South Korean uh, government, saying that they were mulling, only allowing Bitcoin to be trained in regulated exchanges. Yeah, they are, and they're being very cautious on the way that it's being
4: treated over there. It's very uh, interesting.
0: And, and maybe if they do do that, um, they might introduce uh, trading halts for um, uh, at least half of Saturday and all of Sunday. You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm here with uh, Joanne Masters from ANZ, Laura Fitzsimmons from JP Morgan, James Whelan from VFS Group, and David Scott. Okay, um, we're going to uh, wrap up the show quickly by just going around and talking about some of our favorites and, um, uh, and least favorite financial markets calls of the year. Um, it's always a fun uh, way to look back on the year and... Uh, see who's been naughty, who's been nice. Um, James, I am going to start with you. Um, you called out APRA earlier on. Are they on your list?
4: Yeah, apra was on my, was on my best players list on this uh, on this side of things. Big, worst, worst mistake of the year. Worst on ground would have to be, I would say, probably the Tory government, uh, Theresa May, uh, re that election. That uh, it, it 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 stuffed me uh, around a little bit. We, we got the wrong side of it. We thought that it would have been a bit more convincing that it. Than it was, and just managing to squeak through. Um, again, we've been stuffed around a bit by the electoral cycle. Um, Angela Merkel also managing to to only just squeak through, and I didn't. Even, i I stopped paying attention to what's going on in Germany just just until they can get a coalition together. Um, but but Theresa May really did set the Brexit agenda and the guy uh, 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 and 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 how well it was going to be done by how badly she manages to. Lead an election and now
0: cabinets tearing itself apart. And, yeah,
4: um, yeah, yeah, and and it just didn't. It, it, we we were all set for a very smooth Brexit and very positive and bullish uh, on the UK, and it's just compounded a bunch of issues on that, and that all. I'm, I'm going to say that all goes to to uh, the prime minister. That's it. So whereas last year's worst call, I think for me was uh, our prime minister with that double dissolution debacle. Uh, it's uh, now going to be over to the UK to, to lead the way on, uh, on worst call. Maybe
0: a cautionary note that um, should have learned maybe over the last two years that politics has become increasingly difficult to read uh, in all sorts of countries around the world. Uh, um, so, for example, New England with Barnaby Joyce re-elected with a massively increased uh, primary vote. Uh, who knows, uh, we're recording just before this. Ben along by-election, who knows how that's going to play out between John Alexander and Christina Keneally. Um, but the signs are are the polls say that it's 50-50 and everybody thought that um, Alexander was potentially uh, in line for a wipeout but it looks a lot tighter so uh, all very interesting and, um, probably a source of volatility because obviously with markets, where, you know, sometimes you're getting these more sort of, not extreme, but sort of more dramatic economic, um, either be it, be they economic policies or regulatory policies, um, starting to appear in mainstream politics. So, for example, the tax on the banks that was introduced in the budget this year, uh, big surprise to everybody, uh, kind of came out of nowhere. But part of this, I think this, Sort of tapping into this mood in the electorate that some things need to be reined in uh, from some quarters, and you've got to be seen to be doing something. Uh, if you like,
4: uh, okay, really interesting. Best call, yes. I would say possibly uh, would be maybe Frank Lowy getting out at what might be the top uh, <laughs> yesterday. So uh, that's that's all I've got to say on that one. That's uh, it's, that's that for him to give up that empire. That's a big that's a big deal. Yeah. This is a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I'm off. Uh, Laura how about you
1: I would have to say it's interesting as we talk about volatility of Bitcoin and, and clearly as you say, you know, politics bringing that risk of volatility. But at the same time, probably one of the best things you could have done at the beginning of the year was to sell volatility across many different asset classes. So I think what's interesting in markets is that it's sort of evolved now that we have these these tail risks and there's a lot of noise still. But at the end of the day, in terms of movement um, and breaking out of ranges, we, we're just not seeing it in the traditional asset classes so much. Uh, but certainly, I mean, the outlook for now, I mean, obviously rates, we know as we've talked about tapering you know things are changing in that space and we know next year is going to be an interesting one for that reason so you can't necessarily make that same call for next year. Uh, Equity is a difficult one because certainly that grind higher is, is the most you know the, the worst outcome for any vol trader uh, and FX as well as generally kept to ranges apart from the few breakouts say for euro this year has been probably one of those that people got right but um, generally it's been the right thing to range trade uh, and sell vol and it's not really something someone from a bank wants to say but I think we have to acknowledge that was the case for
0: 2018 yeah, right. um, do you have any uh, good calls for the year
1: for well, I mean, that would have been a good one to do, we're but uh, all, yeah, yeah. <laughs> certainly, uh, look, our oil strategists called the oil move pretty well at the end of up to October. They um, sort of upgraded their forecast, and then it rallied 13% thereafter, so that was definitely a good one. In terms of bad calls, I think one of the ones that the market really got wrong this year in the in the rates world, where I spend most of my time, uh, you know, thinking about the Bank of Canada, back in May, we were talking about potentially the risk of a cut still. The next thing they do is come out and hike at the next two meetings. So I think yeah, that definitely wrong-footed a lot of people uh, and got people worried Globally, about central banks and this new phenomenon of moving away from you know very low rates.
0: Yeah, um, Joe.
3: Um, yeah, I guess um, in terms of uh, best calls. Um, you know, I always like, like to plug our own research when, when I do the best call, and uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty happy with our uh, property market forecast this year, actually. I think the housing market in Australia is one that people get wrong often. You know, there's often the call that it's going to collapse or it's going to double, and actually Sydney house prices, uh, I think as I said earlier in the podcast, are going to end this year almost slap on where where we forecast them in January. So for the first time in a long time we haven't had to revise our housing numbers this year, yeah, so uh, I'm pretty impressive. happy about that. Uh, in terms of worse calls, um, I think from a macro perspective, uh, one that pretty much everyone has got wrong and, I don't, you know, they, they, the, the sort of saying says if you get something wrong you need to learn from it, but consistently year after year we underestimate wage growth and the RBA this year in a bulletin article earlier this year had this great chart where they had their wage forecasts, it starts in 2011 mm. and you know what people, it goes down and down yeah. and down and down and yet... You know, not just the RBA, but private sector forecasters. You know, just continuously underestimating uh, wage growth. So
2: don't worry; they're still expecting consumption to do exactly the same. They've been forecasting that to go and rebound for years and years and years, and that has to happen, either.
3: Indeed, indeed. <laughs> and and the other one, I think this time last year, I, I pulled out a sporting, um, a sporting uh, sort of bet that uh, that I'd had, and I'm, I'm not necessarily a big better, but. Uh, you know, uh, every now and again, a sure thing comes along, and um, and I did have a little bet on um, Italy to to be in the World Cup next year, but apparently there's no such oh, thing me. as a sure thing, right? Oh, no, no.
4: Absolutely not. So
3: I would have thought this many years in markets, so I would have learnt that, but uh, anyway, so the message is, people out there, there is no such thing as a sure thing. That's
0: right. Uh, Dave, do you have some
2: favourite and least favourite calls for the year? Oh, where do I start? Um, okay, so... Worst calls, I'll start with. Then we'll end up with the best ones. Uh, Goldman Sachs uh, was calling for an RBA rate hike in November. Hmm, no. Uh, and it's funny that Joe was talking about the RBA. I've got the RBA and Australian Treasury wage uh, growth forecasts, something that they've, uh, they've held for the last six years as well. Um, and another person who I'm going to go and call out specifically because I'm getting quite tired of their, uh, their, their, their rhetoric on Twitter is Jesse Colombo, the bubble boy. Oh, here we go. Now... I've not seen someone who's gone and warned about bubbles for so many years and <laughs> said that it's all going to go and get annihilated and nothing happens like he says. And all of a sudden, like, no, he still thinks, of, oh, no, I predicted the so-and-so crash uh, back in uh, the global financial crisis. Okay, that's great, but since then, you'd be insolvent. Uh, And so he's been continually going on, so he needs to get a call out for being the worst for pretty much everything he's said this year.
4: He's called 27 of the last three recessions, I believe. Yeah, but he'll
2: get it right eventually. Then he'll he'll to proudly say that he called that one right as well. Um, As for the best calls, uh, I've got to go and shout out to Westpac uh, economists for their Q3 CPI call. They were the only ones who were really willing to go and stray away from consensus uh, to the downside and absolutely nailed it. Um, Joanne Masters, ANZ on the impact of electricity price increases on discretionary spending. Thank you. That was uh, that was no, that was that's one of the defining themes. And now everyone's looking at the household sector, um, and also for NAB, NAB went to know uh, their cashless retail sales index, which is a newly created uh, survey. Also uh, got the August plunge in retail sales down to a T. So uh, that was a pretty good call. Uh, and I know that created a lot of interest in that particular uh, one as well. So that's my list for, uh, for 2017. Uh,
0: pretty good list it is. Um, I'm going to run through um, a few quick ones because uh, I know we've almost been going an hour. Can you believe it? Um, so uh, one uh, that gets a Guernsey again from last year. Um, you know, it was on my list last year in terms of the worst calls of the year and it makes it there again. It's the Sydney property bears, those people who've been saying that the mar- market's going to implode. They have been saying it for years. Wrong again this year. It's slowed again, you know. So, congratulations, everyone. Uh, Well done. And um, I just hope that uh, there's not too many people out there who've been uh, investing in line with their advice for too long. Sure, there's risks and all that kind of stuff. And yes, it's slowed down, all that kind of stuff. But I think what we're going to finish up something like 4 or 5%. We're
3: going to glide to a soft landing. (laughs) Glide to a soft Um, landing. (laughs) uh,
4: The phrase is coined now, Joe. That's fantastic. Glide Uh, to a soft
0: landing. And uh, Laura, you touched on this one thing, which is all that kind of sideline money that's um, waiting to. to bid for bonds, um, I thought at the start of this year, there were so many columns written too many to name people who said the 30-year uh, b- bond bull market is over, everything has changed, the fixed income, whatever well, is going to get all this money piling into equities, bonds are going to get smoked, um, and it just hasn't happened. Um, you know, yields have stayed, staying in a range uh, throughout the year. As I mentioned earlier, um, Aussie 10 years yields are lower than where they started the year. Um, so, um, it's been a pretty strong year for, um, for, for bondholders. Um, uh, I think, um, I'm also going to give myself a worst call of the year for not buying a shed load of Bitcoin about three or four years ago, or else I wouldn't be sitting here doing this podcast. You're um, the- <laughs> 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 like, like, doing the best call.
4: You do it for the love of the joke we have be doing this podcast uh, on a boat.
0: On <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and, uh, look, in terms of my good calls, uh, I am going to, um, call out one, to the RBA governor. um, And this is not a suck-up, but I think it was really... Absolutely not, Soka, but I think it was something that put the lights on for me, which is in a speech he gave in the middle of the year talking about the weak bargaining position that um, workers are in. And I think that was a really, for me, that was something that I hadn't considered. I've always believed, or I have been arguing for um, uh, a couple of years now, that I think businesses now need to come to the party on wages growth, need to start um, considering the long term uh, impacts of low wages growth in the economy. The businesses have, I think, corporate Australia has a big role to play in this. Um, but I think Low calling out the fact that people feel insecure about their jobs um, and that they're not in a very strong bargaining position I think was um, an interesting part of the dynamic which I hadn't thought about before. Um, So uh, I also had um, one of Joe's calls uh, which was the negative, very specifically, negative retail sales print in August. It's a big ballsy call to make, to say that uh, retail is going to be negative in any month Uh, and I think you called minus 0.2. Um, uh, which was, um, I I think, almost bang in line. So, uh, which was um, very impressive. Uh, And um, while I'm handing out the candy, James um, uh, talking about, uh, don't worry, it's not a bad one. Um, Talking about for the last 12 months about how Amazon is going to be the biggest business story uh, in Australia this year um, has proved to be dead right. Um, uh, I think most, uh, some of the biggest companies in Australia are thinking about how they react to it. Um, executives, um, uh, uh, marketing managers uh, are all running around um, thinking about how they adapt and deal to this new situation. It's very unpredictable. Um, uh, it certainly has, on, on Business Insider, been one of the, b- the biggest topics, uh, and I think you were very early on in this conversation, and um, and good on you for Thank that. Thank you, yeah. and it's
4: not over yet either. Anyone who thinks that that was it is, uh, is absolutely right. incorrect. There's a lot more to come.
0: Yeah, I know. Um, they certainly didn't get off to you know. This didn't come out in a blaze of glory with cheap prices and you know ice creams
4: and stuff that everyone was expecting. The
0: uh, I, I reckon it's just a, yeah. Can you believe that they the, the guy that they um, that they hired they commissioned a guy to 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 do an orange and black themed ice cream stand at. Flinders Street Station, and it just so happens happened that he ran a blog about retail disruption and Amazon and so on. So he just wrote this blog post saying, "Hey, I'm going. I've been asked to. I run a side thing as a an, with ice cream stands, and I've been asked to do this. And that's uh, how orange went. and black. And that's how it, a big part of it sort of um, came to be. But they cancelled the order on him because um, <laughs> <'cause laughs> after he wrote the blog post,
2: the legend. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, look. Um, one very quick thing, um, I think really important dress code for the office uh, in the summer, we're coming into January, um, is it acceptable to wear shorts in the office, Jill?
3: Uh Look, I'm going to say I won't be wearing shorts, but um, I think business shorts, if that's really a term, is, is probably acceptable, but you know what, thongs are not.
0: Thongs, no thongs yeah. in the office. No
4: thongs, no, no thongs. shoes uh, at all, based on that, <laughs> that's the way that I interpret that one, so uh, look, no... Uh, no shoes, no shirt, no no share trading. The uh, now we, business shorts, business shorts are business shorts are perfectly acceptable um, with us, uh, provided you're not seeing clients, you're not doing anything on the front end. Um, you know what? Luckily, you, I'm, I'm lucky to be wearing pants at this time of year, just quietly. Yeah. Uh,
2: and we're all glad you are. That's right.
4: <laughs> um, yeah, thanks,
0: thanks for dressing up for the occasion, James um, and um, Laura. Uh, From your view, shorts acceptable, not in the office I don't think
1: we're quite ready for that yet at J.P. Morgan. Uh, We certainly go for business casual. Um, There may be the odd Hawaiian shirt that's tried on, on, you know, near New Year's Eve or something, but uh, I think we'll leave it there for now.
0: Fantastic. Uh, Yeah, I'm not sure I've ever worn shorts to the office, um, except maybe on a Sunday um, coming in to pick something up, you know, that I'd forgotten, but... uh um, I think that's uh, about it. Look, uh, thank you for that. That's all you need to know about your business attire for the summer uh, office hours. Um, you've been listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Uh, thanks for listening in. Uh, our guests have been Joe Masters.
3: Thanks very much for having me. Always a pleasure.
0: James Whelan from VFS Group.
4: Thank you, Paul. And on behalf of everyone else, uh, thank you very much for everything you've done for us this year too. It's been great.
0: No worries. Laura Fitzsimmons from JP Morgan.
1: Yes, thank you for learning me along for the first time.
0: Uh, and the indefatigable David Scott. Thank you so much, and uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to all our listeners. Okay, from everyone on the show, thanks for listening this year. Here's wishing you and yours a very Merry Christmas and a relaxing break. We'll be back in February after the summer break with a reinvigorated lineup. Um, you can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're on iTunes under Devils and Details. The show's been produced by Rick Salter. I'm Paul Colgan. Have a great Christmas and a terrific start to 2018.
3: Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's ozpost.com.au slash podcast.